You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Prisons have become hotbeds for COVID-19, with over 57,000 cases recorded since March. Cramped conditions and limited access to soap and masks, as well as overtaxed medical facilities, have left the incarcerated vulnerable. In this segment, Just Mercy executive producer and founder of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, Scott Butnick, and campaign advisor for Represent Justice, Jared Harper, join the program to discuss the grave impact of the pandemic on U.S. prisons. Let's listen. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm Michelle Norris. I'm a columnist with The Washington Post. I want to welcome our next guest. That's Scott <clears throat> Budnick and Jared Harper. Scott, you're a film producer. Um, you produce Just Mercy, uh, the Hangover films, but you're here to talk to us today about the work that you're doing on anti-recidivism. We're also joined by Jared Harper. Thanks to both of you for being with us. I want to hear um, uh, more about the nuts and bolts of prison reform, but your story, your collective story is interesting. So let's begin there. Scott, how did you meet Jarrett? How did the two of you start working together? Well, I uh, I ended up uh, when I was, we made a film called Old School back towards the beginning of my career. And someone brought me into a, a juvenile hall in Los Angeles. And I sat with a group of kids, juvenile hall that Common has since come into and spent a lot of time at and um, sat with a bunch of children, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, that uh, were facing life sentences and life without parole. In fact, the first young man I was sitting next to, I said, how was your week? And he said, it was a really bad week. I just got sentenced to 300 years to life in prison. And that shocked my conscience. And when I asked him to elaborate, he said, I was standing next to my friend who shot the victim in the rear end. The victim was in and out of the hospital in a day. And for standing next to the person with the gun, I ended up getting a 300 to life sentence and he was 15 years old and I was looking at a child. And I just realized as I went around the table and heard from those kids, it was hurt people, hurt people. These were all young people who are victims of everything you could ever imagine um, before they ever decided to victimize someone. And I knew what I was like as a kid and that I caught a lot of breaks and that kids have the ability to change and transform. And I didn't think we lived in a country where our values would allow us to send a kid to die in prison. There's no other country in the world that would do it. So I jumped into this and uh, ended up going into jails and prisons and juvenile halls while I was a movie producer and hired a bunch of folks out of jails, prisons and juvenile halls on The Hangover and ended up going to Lancaster Prison, which is our only prison in Los Angeles County, and ended up doing a lot of work there uh, where I met Jarrett Harper's and Jarrett's story just blew my mind and we got to know each other. And now I call him my brother. I love him like family, um, but that's how it all began. And Jarrett, you, you spent 20 years behind bars. And during that time, you didn't think you were going to see the other side of this. And yet you spent so much time working with other people that you knew were going to get out creating education programs, creating programs to help prepare them for life outside. Um, did that help keep you going in some way, knowing that you were helping other people on their journey? Absolutely. I mean, as, as Common said, um, not only do you have people who are wrongly convicted and sentenced um, to disproportionate sentences, but you also have guilty people. And I was one of those people that that was guilty. Um, I was given a sentence of life without the possibility of parole, plus 10 years when I was a child. That sentence literally um, 
ripped everything out of me. I lost every bit of hope, but I longed for a second chance. After I went to you know, my, my self-help programs and after I connected to my, um, to my higher power, which was God, I knew that I had to do something more. And part of that more was assisting other people. Although I was never gonna be allowed back into society, I knew that my purpose was to assist people who were gonna re-enter society. Once I began to do that, although I was incarcerated, it provided me with so much value and it provided me with hope, um, not necessarily when it came to getting out, but the hope that I can actually be more than my worst act. So actually assisting people was my way of proving myself wrong and proving society wrong. Your story sounds almost like a script from a film that Scott would produce. The um, DA who prosecuted your case said that you were lucky, that's the word I guess he used, that you were not 18 because you would have been eligible for the death penalty. Um, you've just celebrated, I understand, one year of freedom, is that correct? Uh, and did. you're still right, um, and you're right now, um, you say that more than anything, you, you want to start a family, um, but you plan on always looking back over your shoulder to help those that are still behind bars. That's still very important to you, yes? Absolutely. I mean, when I look at, I look at the crisis that we're in right now, a little over a year ago, I escaped COVID-19 um, in the sense of becoming infected while in prison. That was always my worst fear dying inside of a human-made cage. Knowing where I came from, knowing what those guys were experiencing, there's no way to social distance at, at all. You know, um, I mean, spaces are confined. There is there's no way to possibly social distance. It's a, it's a community-based environment. You share water faucets, you, you share you share the shower, you share the phones. There's 200 people inside of our 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 buildings inside of um, California prison systems, and um, everyone has to use the same phone to call their families. And right now, everyone's everyone needs you know exactly what Common says. You need that support, right? You want to know that your family's doing well, but you also you also need to hear that support because they're scared, you know. So so for me actually looking over my shoulder and reaching back to pull my brothers and my sisters up and even juveniles who are um who are who are in detention centers you know looking at them and and knowing that it's 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 the right thing to do right to actually walk away and act as though they don't matter it's just outright wrong especially during a pandemic so looking over my shoulder for me is a must because that's where my friends, that's where my family is at. I know more guys um, in prison than I actually know out here. I have more friends inside of prison who have changed their life, who, who, who have earned a second chance, but they haven't been allowed the opportunity to present themselves, you know, in a way that would show society that they're no longer a, a threat to society. So looking over my shoulder is um, it's just one of those things that, I, I don't have any other choice. Right? That's where I come from. Let's spend a minute talking about the impact of COVID, uh, COVID on prisons. 
Um, the Marshall Project, working with the Associated Press, found that 100,000 people had been released. And it ranges in Virginia, I think it was something like 8%. In Rhode Island, it's 32%. 57,000 people um, are thought to have been infected, infected by COVID. That, had, that number also attributed to work done by the Marshall Project. Uh, what needs to be done for a population that is vulnerable, where, as you say, social distancing is impossible? Um, the reaction varies from state to state. What should the government sh be doing, Scott, right now? And is there anything that individuals can be doing? If you pay attention on social media, there are often campaigns to send things like disinfecting wipes um, to people who are behind bars to try to provide things that right now the prison system seems to be unable to provide. What needs to be done? Well, let's also not forget it. it is absolutely impossible to social distance in there. Um, if you're in a dorm, just getting off your bed, you're on top of someone else next to you, you're next to someone, and to walk down an aisle in between the bunks, you're having to turn your body. So social distancing is 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 out. Um, you also have to realize that when this happened, and rightfully I understand it, all of these corrections departments stopped visiting, so no one sees their family anymore. They stopped all volunteers, so any of the positivity that was coming in there, gone. All religious services, if you are a person of faith, you cannot go to church anymore, you don't see the religious volunteers, pastors, priests, etc. Uh, stopped college, stopped education. So you're now sitting in a cell or in a dorm, watching the TV, seeing the news every night, and absolutely terrified um, that your family members may not make it, that they may die while you're sitting in prison, that you may get it and you may die without being able to say goodbye. Um, so first off, uh, I gotta give another shout out to my brother Common. I told him this and he said, let's do something. So we started a hope and inspiration series um, where we do these conversations just like we're doing today and we bring on special guests and it gets beamed into prisons where over 600,000 people get to watch in their cells or in their dorms and get hope and get inspiration and see that there's so many people out there that care about them and know that we're gonna get through this. Um, obviously looking at releasing folks who are not a danger to the community. So many people that are in prison are there because we're not scared of them, but we're just mad at them. They pose no danger, but there's just people that are mad at them. And so looking at those that don't pose a danger, just like Jarrett, right? Jarrett and Jarrett can tell you there are 200 guys on his yard right now that are serving life sentences for crimes they committed as juveniles and have been in for 30, 40 years in prison. Every one of them could go home. And in California, they have a less than 1% chance of ever coming back. I've never seen a lifer that came in as a juvenile or young adult ever get released and come back to prison in my 20 years of doing this, not one. They're the lowest recidivating population. And even when I tell the story about David, uh, who got 300 years to life for standing next to someone, we were actually able to pass bills in California that Governor Brown and Governor Newsom signed to end sending young people to prison for life um, and to give them the chance of release when they've uh, shown uh, transformation, change, et cetera. And it's affected 26,000 people in our prison system that were sentenced to die in prison as young people. And I think other states adopting that and us as a public saying, yes, let's look at the nonviolent. Those are the easy ones. But there are also people that have been in there like Jarrett for two decades, three decades, that are completely changed and transformed people that committed their crime at a young age because it was hurt people hurt people, because they were traumatized, because they were in the foster care system, or they've been a victim of physical or sexual abuse, not excusing it, but when is enough enough? Um, 
And also, uh, we've been doing so much around Just Mercy in our campaign, Represent Justice. So anyone that's watching that wants to get involved, if they go on to representjustice.org, we have sent in tens of thousands of masks. We've given out uh, millions of dollars to organizations. Um, they can get involved. They can start volunteering. Um, and if you haven't seen Just Mercy, see it because the work of Brian Stevenson and EJI is just so deep and so impactful. And I think that movie also gives you a roadmap of how to get proximate and how to get involved. You know, when pe people right now are actually curious in ways that I have not seen, um, they are hungry for information, uh, even about things that they might not agree with. Um, people who perhaps don't agree with the fight to end police brutality are interested in learning more about it. So for people who are trying to understand the nuts and bolts of prison reform, whether you're talking about halting the um, transfer of juvenile offenders into adult prisons or improving the conditions behind bars or creating a better system for rehabilitation, what are the things or what are the other, if, people, if you were to create a quick syllabus, just one or two things beyond seeing Just Mercy that you think people need to do or read or go to to better understand this issue, where would you lead them? Um, I think common mentioning the new Jim Crow um, is huge. Um, the thing is, what I've run, what I've saw, we've been doing a lot of work in Oklahoma recently, and obviously a place um, that is very different politics than California. But I've seen the folks in Oklahoma, deeply evangelical folks of faith, get hugely involved in this issue and start um, doing prison ministry. Um, I've seen people, at the very least, sign a petition to look at a case of someone that's innocent on death row like Julius Jones in Oklahoma. I've seen people ask to bring Just Mercy, the book or the film, to their book club or to their church group uh, or to use it in the curriculum in their high school or their college class. Um, I've seen Color of Change, colorofchange.org, uh, do incredible work around educating people on the importance of prosecutors and the decisions that prosecutors have, whether to rehabilitate someone or punish them in a draconian way that's out of step with the rest of the world. And Color of Change does incredible work. Obviously, the work that Brian Stevenson and EJI are doing, EJI.org, um, in terms of educating people uh, to have to confront things that are uncomfortable for us. Like I had a conversation with my family in Atlanta about how we as a country have never fully confronted our past of slavery. And the fact that we had human beings um, that were slaved, that were whipped, which is just an atrocious thought that we did that. But when Brian talks about Germany looking at the Holocaust and saying never again, I think it's important for us to, these are uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's easy to wanna forget our past, but I think the work that Brian Stevenson and EGI does to educate folks, to not blame folks um, and say, this is your fault, but to say, open your mind, come in and understand this. I think this is great work. And I've seen with my family that is in Atlanta and deep in Georgia, I've seen post-George Floyd them start having conversations of watching CNN or reading the Washington Post or watching other news networks and understanding for the first time wow, sometimes it's just so hard to be black. I never quite got that or raising a black child. To hear my own family, my white family from the South say that and now um, say it right now for the first time after George Floyd, I think 
we're moving in the right direction. I want to bring in a question from one of our listeners. Um, uh, she, her name is um, Chris, or actually, I don't know if it's a man or a woman. It's Chris O'Neill. I shouldn't assume that it's a man or a woman. It's Chris O'Neill who was uh, watching from Texas and wants to know what are the three most important needs of someone who's just been released from prison. Jared, of course, this is a question for you who just uh, celebrated your one-year anniversary. What are the needs of people who are integrating back into society? Housing, right? Housing is a is a is a huge issue for returning citizens. Um, within the first seventy-two hours. If a person does not have an actual safe residence to actually call their home or, or a place just to reside, there is, a, there is almost a three to four times um, more likelihood that you will recidivate. Right? There's, there also needs to be um, a jump, but not necessarily a jump, but an increase in the funds that, that are given to a person who's being released. When I was released a little over a year ago, I was given $200. That $200 after 20 years was for me to get a license, get, get um, um, a social security card, a birth certificate. After that, I pretty much didn't have any more money. So ensuring that um, returning citizens do have enough money to actually do the things they need to actually safely and positively and reintegrate back into society. Something else that I that I really that I really believe we need is we need to actually ban the box. When when a person gets out of prison, when I say ban the box, um, it's it's a lot of companies actually um, exclude people who have records. Right? It's known when you're in prison, when you get out, you have a record. You know you have to go into some of the worst jobs possible. Even though you may have a skill, you've rehabilitated yourself, you're still, you're still not, not in a, not in a, in a, in a, in a fair place when it comes to the workforce. So ensuring that people who are returning actually have a fair chance when it comes to employment, housing, and enough income to, to actually reintegrate back into society. Those are the things that, that returning citizens need. Jerry, if you could just explain ban the box, that means the little box that you have to check if you're applying for a job, applying for housing, yes. um, any kind of application you have to fill out. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and even with that box, so when it, when it comes to employment, that's one of the questions that's, that's usually posed. Have you ever committed a crime or a felony? That, I mean, it excludes so many people. Out, right out here in California, we have well over 100,000 people inside of our prison. When those people get out of prison, it's less likely that they will get a job that's going to be able to support them and their family. And so banning that box is something that's, that's really needed. Um, there's, so many, there's so many supportive services that um, a person who went to prison are, are, are just not eligible for because of that record. Once a person pays their debt to society, I think that we as a society, we need to actually invite them back into our society and give them a fair chance. 
It has been so wonderful to talk to both of you. I hope this is just the beginning of a conversation that we will continue over time because the issue is just that important. Scott Budnick, Jared Harper, thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks, Michelle. Love you, Jared. Love you, bro. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.